Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 673 with my guest Katie Love. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, I am not a therapist, and this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, Patreon update. Um, Well, first of all, actually, uh, I I sent this message via Patreon to people who... um, qualify to attend the Sunday afternoon Zoom slash Hangout uh, meeting. Uh, Normally, it's 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time every Sunday. And this Sunday, uh, it's going to be at 1 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. But just for this week only, that would be December 10th. Um, We are up to 843 uh, paid subscribers to uh, to the podcast. And uh, we we really need to hit that goal of, of 1,500. We've been creeping um, slowly, slowly, slowly. And uh, anybody who can support us with monthly donations for as little as a dollar a month, and depending on what tier you donate to, you qualify for certain uh, rewards. And there you, and of course, you can always do a one-time donation via PayPal or even a monthly recurring do- donation via PayPal. And you can support the podcast by subscribing to it through, uh, through Apple Podcasts or leaving a nice review, blah, 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 blah. Hate saying that stuff, but <laughs> got to do it. This is from the Fears Survey, and this is filled out by a trans woman who calls herself manic unsheared trans girl i'm not sure what unsheared means i guess that means uh you're you need a haircut uh share something you fear i guess i have one of those personalities that people feel comfortable confiding in and trauma dumping slash getting emotional on and while sometimes never in the moment i feel glad to be that kind of person to put people at ease i always find it extremely draining and in a way triggering I don't have anyone in my life I can talk to about my struggles because I feel like nobody has ever shown me they care to know. I'm afraid of snapping one day soon while someone is dumping on me and people finding out I'm not as caring and sweet as they think, that I'm just a shitty put-upon people pleaser with low self-esteem who blows up at strangers for telling her how they feel. I guess I'm afraid of people assuming we are closer than I feel we are because I know them, but they don't know me because they tell, but they never ask. 
I'm so glad that you asked this question because I think it's a really, really important topic for a lot of people. And, um, you know, you say that you're afraid of people finding out that you're not as caring and as sweet as you are. You, you can be caring and sweet. I don't, I, the fact that you feel drained by people and that you'd like them to ask you how you're doing does not take away from you being caring and sweet just means it's it's a lopsided relationship and I personally have had to distance myself from people who are draining and it's been a really really important factor in me feeling more at ease walking out my front door or answering the phone any of those things uh, having intimacy in in all of my relationships whether they're platonic or uh, romantic um, and so uh, I, I I would experiment with distancing yourself from people, you know, either, you know, in the middle of a draining session, say, hey, listen, I got to go or saying, uh, and this is the phrase I've mentioned this on the podcast many times before, but the phrase that I used with somebody was, um, I care about you and I want to be there for you, but I'm starting to feel resentful because I feel like an audience member and uh, the conversation often feels um, uh lopsided and I don't want to feel that way and sometimes I struggle but I'm afraid to speak up uh, for you know one reason or another so just a just a thought but um, the good thing about speaking up for yourself is it gives that other person an opportunity to reveal their character which we can then use to inform further decisions on our relationship or lack of relationship with that person this is from, which survey is this? This is from the uh, religious uh, abuse survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself a uh, recovering Calvinist. And he writes, I was raised in a Calvinist church. My family and the church we attended believed in predestination. If you're not familiar, it's the concept that some people are predestined to go to heaven and everyone else can go fuck themselves. I did some quality, quote, sinning, unquote. I moved in with my fiance, and the guilt caused me to break off the engagement and break up with her. I began to think I'd done something unforgivable by living with her. I tried to find some reassurance that I was still saved, but I found none. At that point, I became fully convinced that I was predestined for hell and that there was nothing I could do to change that. I desperately wanted to kill myself because of that horrible realization and the intense loneliness and terror I felt. Fortunately, my fear of hell kept me alive, tortured, terrified of my inevitable post-life destination of eternal conscious torment. I now find it somewhat funny that my fear of hell created hell on earth for me. My experience with Christianity has caused me to throw out almost everything I once believed in. The Christian church at large now seems to me like a giant dead tree, obsessed with doctrine and moral perfection, disconnected from any sort of spiritual roots. I long for the day when all of the hatred, homophobia, and us or them thinking get stripped away and the church can get back to simply being a loving and non-judgmental place for human beings of all walks of life to come and heal. 
Any comments to make the podcast better? I really loved when Paul played his music as he was reading a survey, made hearing the survey an even more beautiful experience. Well, I just put a little music under your thing there. I hope you liked it. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Mina, Mina, M-I-N-A. And Mina writes, I love how accepting the rave community is. I love the two donuts I eat at work every day. I love that I am creative. I love how poetry helps me work through my emotions. And I love talking to my mom on the phone. Oh, and I love me. Those are awesome. Thank you for that one. This one is a bit uh, heavy. And normally I would read something this heavy after the interview. Those of you that are familiar with the podcast know that uh, the, the heavier surveys tend to be uh, after after the interview. But I don't know. I, I wanted to read this one right here. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And this is filled out by Anne with an E. And uh, what would you like to ask Paul? And she writes, is it possible to be a murderer and a good person? My father raped my sister repeatedly in sadistic ways I can't detail here without freaking people out. He broke her bones on purpose. He burned her. He whipped her and made her urinate herself. Those are the things I can share. The rest was worse. Our youngest sister was immunocompromised so severely that when he regularly threatened to kill her if we misbehaved or told anyone we knew, he could do it. I'm not sure if I'm reading that correctly. But the next sentence, so I killed him. I replaced his medication with little chalky candies that looked like his meds. He was dead within a year. I know I should regret it. I know he was my dad and I should love him. I also know my very first memory was him choking my sister unconscious while he violated her. I never felt love for him. I don't feel anything a lot of the time. I spent a lot of my life cooking, cleaning, and running the house, so I didn't get to be anything other than the mom we didn't have after she ran off. My younger sister hates me. She says our dad loved us, and if she could have proved it, she would have put me in prison. My youngest sister doesn't know how to feel because he almost never interacted with her. My extended family calls me a monster. I think I might be. I get angry. Uh, I might be. I don't get angry or happy very often. I don't feel guilty about this. Other things, yes, but not this. Am I a bad person? Have I always been? Or did seeing him be evil show me how to be evil too? Wow. The one thing I do know is people are made up of dark and light. And I think people are capable of, I don't know if I would use the, the word extremes, um, but you put people in situ- certain situations and they will react in ways that may surprise themselves. If you talk to combat vets returning from war, they discovered a part of themselves 
that they didn't know existed. Not all of them, um, but the book, uh, What It's Like to Go to War by Carl Marlantes, talks a lot about, about that. And I don't believe that you are a monster. Um, and I know this is going to sound like a funny phrase to say out loud. I don't endorse murder. But, you know, when kids are trapped in a home and they need to defend themselves, I think, or a spouse is is trapped in a home. Yes, they have more autonomy than children. Um, I think they sometimes do things that on the outside may look immoral, whatever you want to call it. But unless somebody knows what it was like to be in their shoes experiencing that same thing, especially when it's horrifying, like what you and your siblings experienced, and I mean, on the scale of horrifying, that's off the charts. And so uh, I hope that you can find a way to heal from that and to have compassion for yourself. And you do not sound... Um, like an innately bad person to me. Um, you know, maybe this is a terrible analogy to compare a dangerous human being to a dangerous dog, but um, I don't know, man. If I was trapped in a room with a dog that kept biting me and no way to get out of the room, I would probably put it down. Wow, that was fucking heavy. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Peeper. Peeper writes, I love thunderstorms. The smell of the petrichor when it starts to rain. I have no idea what petrichor is, but I think that's that bodice that ladies, <laughs> that ladies wore at the, uh, the end of the 18th uh, the 1800s. Uh, the change in the pressure of the atmosphere, feeling the wind pick up and the leaves rustling, almost validating the wind you just felt rush past you. The little wave of fear when the lightning gets too close, signaling that it's time to go inside. Then staying in, listening and watching the rain come down and finding my rain barrel full of water. Those are beautiful. I love every one of those. I was about 10 yards away from a lightning strike once. Holy shit. Is that freaky? This is an awful moment filled out by a trans man who calls himself all aboard the confusion train. Choo choo. And he writes, I was sitting in my mother's living room with her and her husband after my mom attempted suicide early in, earlier in the afternoon. We had been talking for a couple of hours at that point, and my mother shared with me that she and her husband were very behind on their mortgage and were facing a potential foreclosure. My mother said that they were brainstorming ways to save money and avoid losing their house and mentioned that they were considering buying a sailboat and living on it and renting out their house. In my next therapy session, I spent a large portion of the time talking about how ridiculous buying a sailboat to save money was. 
I told my therapist that I wish I could understand how my mom and her husband could even ponder that idea. She said that it was good that I didn't understand because if I understood, it would mean that my brain could inhabit the same thought process as my mom and I would not think that it was a bad idea. I pride myself in being able to, quote, put myself in other people's shoes, unquote, but on that day, for the first time, I was happy to not understand. Well, this is complicated for me because I'm reading this aboard my sailboat where I live and save so much money. It's funny, when I was halfway through this survey, I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like a good idea. You wouldn't be paying rent. It might be a little cramped. You might get a little seasick. But uh, the hell do I know? We are going to uh, take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And then one more survey before we uh, get to the interview with Katie Love. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Q. And about her depression, she writes, it feels like holding on to a very thin tree branch that hangs over an abyss. Everything I do is premised upon sheer willpower. Otherwise, I would have let go a long, long time ago. My consciousness might be disintegrating. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> 
the greatest source of our suffering ordinary is where all the good stuff happens is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions is very hard to heal in dark isolation i developed compassion it is in connection and community where that happens the process was nearly unbearable like i'm gonna have to kill myself we'll be right back after this I'm here with uh, Katie Love. You're a comedian, an author. Your publicist reached out to me. Uh, you have quite a story. Yes, I do. Let's. Dive. But I'm going to tell it all in this podcast voice right here. I like it. I'm down. We're going to. I'm down for. We're it. really going to dramatize yes. it right here. In uh, a world. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's dive right into the shit show. Okay. Um. <laughs> Yes, please refer to my life as a shit show. That yeah. I am so comfortable already. This is <laughs> good night, everyone. All right. So, um, talk about the the moment where it the big moment, the big in moment in your childhood. Oh, in my childhood. Well, the book actually opens up when I'm about twelve, and then goes back into the beginning of. The beginning of the the end, really, with my mother, who was uh, probably bipolar. Back then, they didn't really diagnose it like that. Uh, she was an alcoholic. She was bipolar. Um, but we open the book. I'm 12 years old, and I'm at the door. I'm a Jehovah's Witness now at the ripe old age of 12. And I'm knocking on the door, and it occurs to me that I really don't want to be in this inherited religion of mine. And after my mother passed when I was nine years old, so three years prior, um, I went to go live with my sister, who was my legal guardian, and she was very zealous in studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so she posed a question to me, do you want to see mom again happy and living forever? Now, what nine-year-old who's just found their mother dead, she committed suicide. And you found her. And I found her. I was first on the scene isn't going to say, yes, please, what do I need to do? And the answer to that was do everything that Jehovah tells you. And I was promptly escorted into the Jehovah's Witness cult. I call it a cult because they uh, dictate to you how you shall think, believe, what you'll read, who you are, what you do. And if you don't, you lose your entire family and all of your friends. So to me, anything that um, exacts that kind of um, that kind that kind of <laughs> loyalty, if you will, without any um, you know, without any, I would say, what they call Christian love, mm -hmm. there's just no parameters. You either are a Jehovah's Witness or you're not. So it's like the Bachelorette. It, exactly. You get your rose, your or it's <laughs> it's you know, or you don't get the rose. Okay, and you're left crying in the hot tub. Um, so in the book's opening, I'm knocking on the door and I realize I don't want to be in this religion and the hot musician type answers the door and I'm changing, you know, I'm a tween now. I've survived this thing for three years and, um, and I'm recognizing that there's some holes in their story about what it is to be a Jehovah's witness and what paradise earth is supposed to look like. And I'm already sick of the preaching. It's just not jiving with me, man. I'm already a writer. I've been a writer, you know, since I was about, I guess I started writing at about seven years old or so. I used to write books for my mom and then staple them on the side. And I used to write these little comedy vignettes. 
and um, hand them to her while she was in a drunken stupor trying to get her to laugh. You know, that was kind of my shtick. So that's where we open the book. And then I uh, do a little, uh, then I do a little flashback. And I, I start with that big moment that day that I walked into the apartment and knew as soon as I stepped into it that my mother was gone. So how how did you know? Just a feeling? Well, this is a weird thing. And, you know, it always sounds a little woo-woo when I tell the story, but it's it's absolutely how it happened. I was uh, – I left that morning knowing that my mother was in really bad shape because the night before she'd partied pretty hard, played the piano till all hours of the night. And I used to lay under the grand piano and listen to her music and why I'm not deaf at this point. We don't know why. <laughs> but I, I escaped that with my hearing, which is nice. What? Anyway, so when I left that morning, I left her a note to say that I would be back uh, at the apartment uh, at noon, but I had to take this big test. This was like me going into like fourth grade or something, fourth or fifth grade. And so I had to run off to do this test. We were living in Oakland, California in this little apartment. And so when I left her, I felt kind of guilty because I knew she was in bad shape that day. She had kind of slept in my little under the piano fort. And she usually went into her own bed, but I couldn't wake her up. So I was like, well, I better, you know, I better go take this test. So I left the note in the in the bathroom and I went and I took this test. And I'm at school. And you remember those huge clocks that they had? Those mm-hmm. like big, it's like clock, you know, and whenever you see them in a movie, it's like they do the tick nice and loud tick, you know, and I finished my little test. I was, I was pretty confident I was going to make it into the next grade and I just knew I had to leave. It's like a cold wind just went whoosh. And I was like, I got to get home right now. And it still gives me chills when I think about that moment because I think that's the moment that my mother shot herself. It was it was an all out like there was no way I was not going to, you know, not go. I ran home till my lungs were like seizing and I put my hand on the doorknob and I, and I described this in the book. And when I opened the door, there's this tinny acrid smell that I'd never smelled before. And when I called out her name and it was deathly silent, I knew. And then in the book, I sort of go back into our story and who we were together. So the book overall, I would say is it's kind of like a mother daughter love story. It's about a little girl who would have done anything to get back to her mother again. And then you've got this like, you know, defining cult hanging over your head that says, well, if you really want to see your mother again, be a Jehovah's Witness, preach the word, and then everybody will die at Armageddon, then we'll have the last days, and and then we'll have Paradise Earth, and everybody will be resurrected, and they'll all be happy, and we'll all live together here on a Paradise Earth forever. And don't process your trauma. Right. Yeah. Not a bit. So there was uh, a three-year gap between when it happened and when your sister uh, encouraged you to do everything to be a good... No, there was a one-week gap. Oh, a one-week so gap. So my Yeah, my mother died at nine years old when I was nine years old. And then a week later, they came to me with this book, and it had pictures in it. It was meant for kids, and it had all these animals lazing by a pool of water and she said, you know, this is paradise. If you want to see mom again happy, you have to do everything Jehovah says. And that was like one week after my mother had died. 
the gap for me was that three years that I'm talking about was that first seed of doubt. Oh, any time that, you know, you're in a cult religion or anything that it's that first seed of doubt. Cause you asked me, what was that defining moment? And there was kind of two, there was a day my mother died. And there was that day that I was like, what is this thing? I don't belong here. And so then I was grappling with, and I grappled with it for years. And your, I didn't. And your sister, you were under your sister's care. I was. She was my legal guardian. She was 14 years older than me. So you figure she's, what, 20, 22, 23, managing this kid that's nine years old that came from an alcoholic parent. You know, it's very dysfunctional. But she was my mother slash sister, you know, because she became my, my legal guardian. So And where did she Get introduced to Jehovah's Witness. I think they knocked on her door. I think that they found so her it at works. the door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're still doing it. But the thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses is like, you know, the book Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy, the title came from that I carried this whole hope, you know, that I had these, you know, proverbial tickets. Me and my mom, we were going to be like, you know, in paradise together, let's do this thing. And it drove me to stay in it. And of course, the fear of losing the rest of my family, which was my sister and her husband who raised me and their daughter and who's who left the religion also, but she was never baptized in it, and her son. Um, and then all my friends that I grew up with since age nine, you know, because it's pretty close knit once you're mm-hmm. in the religion and you don't have friends outside of the religion. And so, so when the, you leave. Yeah. So when you leave, you literally lose everybody. And it's a very rootless, free-falling, frightening experience. But inside the Jehovah's Witness religion, there is a terrible problem that existed back then and, and exists still today um, where they uh, really do not protect the children of the congregation. So I went into a situation when I turned 13 where I was having some trouble, you know, believing this religion and I was starting to buck. I did not believe it anymore. And uh, this elder and his family in another congregation, I went to visit them for like some little summer fun thing and they wanted me to come to live with him, them. And uh, so I pressured my sister about it and I said I wanted to live with this family and it's this whole huge chapter in my book, um, I think it's chapter 11, Secrets in Paradise. And I went to go live with this family, and the elder, the father of this family, uh, which was, he was a very prominent uh, member of the congregation, uh, sexually abused me for nine months, almost every night. And finally, when I, I got up enough courage to, to blow the whistle on this guy, and I saw him looking at his 10-year-old uh, stepdaughter, and I said, no, I got to save this girl. I have to save her. And that was – I, I didn't have enough self-esteem to save myself, but I had enough to save her. And that's such a common thing. Well, it's very common in this religion, and what I didn't know when I was writing it – I mean the uh, – you can stick up for somebody else. Oh, oh, but, I thought you meant in the religion. No, or in that's common as yeah. well. Yeah, but. isn't it? And, you know, I didn't really realize that until I started talking about it more because you're in such a bubble anyway as an abuse victim, I think, until you start talking about it. And it's this weird thing where you're like – that talk about defining moments. I was writing the book. I was 
in my place in LA and uh, I started doing research to see if there were other cases. This is years into this. I mean, this book took me a long time to write. And um, I came upon the case in Australia where 1,000 babies came forward to talk about their abuse by the Jehovah's Witness religion. Why do you use the word babies? Because they were minors. And to me, I gotcha. babies. Okay. Some of them were some of the, the kids that are being abused still today. They're as young as five years old. It's a terrible tragedy. And while it does happen in a lot of religions, the thing that surprises me about the Jehovah's Witnesses is that they don't really acknowledge it. They don't apologize. They're just like, Jehovah will fix it. And so the the penitent clergy law protects them, meaning that if you confess a sin to an elder or member of the, the congregation in the Jehovah's Witness religion, your your story, your crime is protected by law. And it's still really yeah that's that law is still in effect in several states, and so now, um, now they're pushing this to say that you know it is against the law not to report a crime against a minor um, or a violent crime. So, but it's still happening. It's still something that they're burying, and I find that to be, I find it to be wildly. Uh, inappropriate, frustrating. It makes me angry. But the book overall was really about me finding my own truth and finding a way to seek a new path that was something I'd never had before, which was, you know, total creative freedom. And I didn't have the courage to do that until I was 30. So let's uh, let's just back up. Sure. I'm kind of interested in the way that your um the coping mechanisms however yeah. blunt they might have been as a 9-year-old, 12-year-old mm-hmm. as you grew the things that you had to let go of. I mean, as I'm picturing this really really regimented no room for nuance thing. I'm, yeah. I'm imagining that you, you had to be a bit of a perfectionist to try to fit in or win praise, or is that not the case? <laughs> um, you know, I'll always say that what saved me all along was humor. And I do joke that, you know, I left a cult and went into a new kind of tyranny called comedy. Yeah. But I always coped with humor. Even when my mother was alive and we were together Uh, My siblings were both quite a bit older, 10 and 13 years older than me. So I was kind of an only child for a very long time. And humor was always the thing that got me through. So that was my early coping mechanism. Of course, that becomes nuanced as you grow into adulthood and you find a way to to express yourself. And so it, it was humor, but it was also... What do I really want to do with the talent that I have? What What's my purpose? What am I doing here? The coping, the coping mechanisms, you know, as a young woman still in this religion were basically, I was just out in the country. We lived out in the country in this little shit town called Dixon, California. Sorry, Dixon. Um, I'm sure you've come a long way. I think you guys have like outlets now or something. But anyway. It was this little town in between Sacramento and San Francisco, and it was out in the country. 
And I rode horses and I had a 10-speed bike and I would run in between the cornfields and I wrote, wrote, wrote. Like I did a lot of writing. And expressing myself in nature and on the page was pretty much how I got through it. Um, And then around that, I was still having to preach. There's a chapter. You're going door to door. Yeah, I was going door to door. So when I came back from this house that I lived in where I was abused, no one knew that I'd been abused at my home when I came back. And I made them promise not to tell anybody. But of course, that worked out well for them. You mean your sister's home? Yeah, my sister's home. No one knew what what I'd been through. And there's this thing called pioneering as a Jehovah's Witness that's when I when I wrote about it, it made me laugh. It still makes me laugh now because it's considered the rock star status of being a Jehovah's Witness. And pioneering basically means that you give up all your free time. And I mean, you know, when you're 13, 14, your free time is like, you know, that that's your tween time. That's your mm-hmm. that's your party time. And I came back and I felt so I was this abuse victim. And I turned this guy in to the, you know, to to the the what they call the governing body or whatever at the congregation where this had occurred. He got in a lot of trouble, so he got disfellowshipped, you know, but we don't know if he had a pattern of that before, but we found out later that he actually did have that pattern. But at the time, I didn't know that he was abusing his stepdaughters as well. And they knew about it. That's the tough part about this whole story is that they knew that he was grooming me next and that they were going to get a break because I was moving in. And they carried that guilt throughout their whole life. And I don't want to have a spoiler alert on the book, but in the last chapter I discovered after I filed a case against the Jehovah's Witnesses and there was a detective that did some work on it and I found out the story of those two girls that were abused. And it was a really harsh way to see what the end result was if you don't have coping mechanisms. And I'll just leave it at that. But um, When you say uh, they carry the guilt... They carried a lot of guilt who, because who did? the two girls that I were gotcha. in the household had been abused, but I didn't know it when I was living there. And I was his, you know, prime new uh, victim in the house. But before I moved in, I didn't know that these two girls had been abused. And then I found out later what happened and it was. So they blamed themselves for your abuse. They did because they didn't warn me. But what they didn't know is we're, we were dealing with a predator. Right. You know, and that's how they operate. So in the coping mechanism, um, I think when I, when I found that out, I had already finished the book. It already made the rounds to publishers. And now of course I had a new ending and it, I had to, this whole thing informed a new ending. So I had to rewrite it. I had to rewrite the ending and it really took me out of my bubble. Any bubble that I thought I was in or I felt worried that I was in popped because I got to see firsthand just how serious this kind of abuse is and just how serious trauma like that is and guilt and not having something in place, the stark reality of what that looks like to not have a coping mechanism in place. Meaning yourself or the girl's? The girls, well, the girls, I don't want to give it away like what happened sure, because it's the sure. last chapter and I think it's an important, I think it's an important book because it 
it really tells tells the story of you know searching your searching for your own your own uh, pathway out of something out of out of what you know to be the truth to really find who you are in, in all of this fray and but the juxtaposition of who I was at the time I was writing the book and just how far I'd come as far as therapy and the work that I was doing on myself and the forgiveness that I had to have for myself because all abuse victims, most abuse victims, I don't want to say all, carry the guilt of why Why did I let that happen? Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Right? Yeah. yeah. What if I would have not <clears throat> gotten in that car and went to go live with that family? What if I would have turned around? That moment comes up a lot. And so there's some forgiveness that has to happen for yourself. But I got to see in a real, in real time, in a real world, what what it looks like when someone doesn't forgive themselves and they hold that guilt, what it really looks like and what it does to a life and what it does to a heart and what it does to a mind. And I was so grateful in that moment for the work that I did do. I did five years of therapy. I, I devoured any kind of like self-help book. I was crazy for Anthony Robbins. Everybody calls him Tony Robbins, but to me, he's Anthony. But, you know, in the Jehovah's Witness religion, there's everything's editorialized. So if you have a problem, you're going to find your answer in the Watchtower or Awake. So you're not going to go that's to their a their newsletter. Yeah. That, well, it's their pamphlets. If pamphlets. you've ever, yeah. if they've ever stopped at your house and they whip out these two magazines. Um, so there was no mental health. There was no Jehovah will fix it. Mm-hmm. And read this article that was written in 1994 about depression or they have these chronicled like little answers for everything and there's no real mental health help and then in the underlying in the under in the uh, in the underbelly of all this is all of this abuse there there was when i reported this abuse i was 13 years old there was no child advocate in that room it was me and a bunch of guys in suits that had to have been terrifying and it was horrifying and they threatened me and they told me to keep it quiet and it was, it was a lot. So how did you unwind that all in therapy? Give me some, some moments or yeah. some kind of the arc. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know the, the moments or the epiphanies that kind of held and, and kept you moving forward. Well, when I went to therapy, I was working at the Los Angeles Times. I was a um, sales, uh, I was a sales rep there. I had big, you know, sales territory, and I was a writer. So I was some of my articles were being um, published there, and I was trying to get my own column. So they were grooming me for that. So I was doing a little bit of entertainment writing for the Calendar Live section, and I was doing sales at the same time. I had a lot on my shoulders because I was very ambitious because. You know, when you're in a cult religion like that and you, you're told that the world's going to end, you always feel like you're, you've are you lost a bunch of time. And when I talk to ex-JWs, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, that's the most common problem. They feel like they're out of time. They're running out of time. They wasted time. There's a lot of discussion about time. So when I went to therapy, my first thing was, you know, I want to feel free to live my life now and I feel still feel like locked down by this past of time. That and had you rejected all of their uh, ideas of 
Yeah, the world and the animals yeah, by I'm, the pool. I'm, I'm considered an apostate, so I'm disfellowshipped. So that means that I, I left the religion. So there's a chapter in the book called. Um, uh, it's escaping me now, but it's about me going to the Bahamas and leaving the religion. And the funny part about that is the carrot that the Jehovah's Witnesses promise is living in paradise. And I went to Paradise Island in the Bahamas. I'm like, woohoo, I'm out of here. I reached paradise. Bye bye. And when I came and I just fornicated my brains out with this islander. And I had been celibate for 10 years in this religion because I got married to an elder in the congregation, an elder son rather. And uh, I got divorced. So I was married and divorced by the time I was 21. I got married at 16, divorced at 21. And you're not supposed to divorce in that religion. So then I had to wait for him to find another mate so that I could be free because they don't recognize divorce. Even if it's legal, they don't recognize it until the other party or one of the parties with the quote unquote defiles the marriage bed. <laughs> okay, it's some scripture. Ye shall not defile the marriage bed. Don't even know the scripture. Don't care. But anyway, that's the concept. So finally, he gets married to somebody, and so now I'm finally free or whatever. But it was like 10 years of celibacy and me like not knowing what to do. Like, how am I going to get out of this cult religion and live my own life? So I was trying to do this covert backup thing, you know, where I was like trying to leave the religion like quietly. And that was just not working out. They were knocking on my door wanting to know where I was. I was kind of considered like the... um like all the teenagers really liked hanging out with me because I listened to, you know, rock and roll and George Michael and I was, you know, writing and I was talking about, you know, movies and talk shows. And I, I was an entertainer from way back, but I just, you know, didn't have a way to express it. And so they were worried about my influence on the younger members of this congregation because they were always wanting to hear what I was up to. I was probably doing comedy I was doing free stand-up for years, probably, in the Jehovah's Witness religion. So when I wasn't answering their calls, I finally just said, look, I'm out of here. I fornicated in the, bah- in the Bahamas. I don't regret it. I'm non-repentant. I want out of this thing. And I had to go to this huge meeting, and they were like, you know, Sister Love is here, and she's admitted to fornication. And then all these people kept coming in late, These these, and they're all suits, men in suits. So they'd come in. It was like a weird game show. And it's like. It sounds sis- like the Handmaid's yeah, Tale. Yeah, it's so Handmaid's Tale. Sister Love is admitted to fornicating. Sister Love. Sister Love. Oh, you've come in late? Sister Love is admitted to fornicating. She's non-repentant. And it just kept going like this, like for an hour. Finally, I get out of this meeting. And what was so funny is someone read the book. And they asked me a question. They go, why did you go to the meeting? I was like. I don't know. I was that, still that's what I was so ask. indoctrinated, right? That I was like, of course I've got to go to the meeting. I mean, why don't I just tell them to fuck off and I right. don't go to the meeting, right? I left the religion and they could do whatever they want. No, I went and I went to this meeting and I ended this thing. So I left the religion and now, of course, I speak out, you know, for people to have freedom and be able to make their own choices. And when you do that, you're considered an apostate in the religion. So in that moment when they announced my um, my non-repentant status and my that I was disfellowshipped, I literally lost everyone in my life that was a Jehovah's Witness. And I was living in this house that was in a cul-de-sac that in the book I renamed cul-de-sac because everybody in this in this cul-de-sac were Jehovah's Witnesses. He liked to rent this guy that owned these all these little houses. He like he, he he loved running to Jehovah's Witnesses, and so everybody was a Jehovah's Witness. 
So I went from, hey, Katie, how you doing? One day to the next day, like, they're looking over here. They're not looking at you. The eye contact's over here to the west or the east, certainly mm-hmm. not at you. And I became like this weird contagion. So I had left the religion. But but that kind of abandonment of, you know, it, it, that's probably what really drove me to therapy was the abandonment of my mother committing suicide, knowing that I was going to come home that day. I left the note for her to say I would be home. So she didn't love me enough to stay alive, at least till I could get home. Like the abandonment just, you know, it kept... It kept uh, layering up. And I recognized, you know, I was really, like I said, I was very ambitious at the LA Times. But I always felt like there was a cloud hanging over me, like there was this thing, like what if the world really is ending? And I couldn't get that last, I couldn't get that last culty stuff out of my system. There was worries that I had that I knew cognitively. I knew that they weren't real, but they had landed in my heart and kind of branded in there and I needed to get it out and I didn't know what to do. I'd gone through all my self-help stuff. I loved listening to all that. I, like I said, devoured books and I landed in this therapist's office and I feel like I stayed too long. I was in there for five years. I was like, for the love of all, it's only let me out of here. So by the time that I left this therapy, I was really ready to go. I feel like I kind of stayed a little too long because I remember driving into the appointment and um, thinking, what am I going to talk about today? I'm in a good mood. <laughs> and that's when I ended it, you know, sometime around that. And then the continuing work I do. In fact, I saw one of your podcasts talking about how um, trauma will come up and, you know, it'll it'll come back and scare you again. And that happened with one of the podcasts that I was doing. Uh, I did a podcast called Shooting It Raw. And they wanted four photos that chronicled your story. And when I was picking out the photos, I came across two photos uh, that I was thinking about putting in. And I realized, oh, that'll take the story in this direction. And we only have an hour and blah, blah. But the two photos just put a chill up my spine. And it literally, I went into a full on like crying anxiety that I hadn't experienced in years and years. Because one photo was of me at 12 years old before the abuse. And I was at the Russian River, and I was having fun. Even though I was in a cult religion, we were a family. We were at Russian River. We were having fun. We were camping. I was a tween. I was happy. I was still had my quote-unquote innocence. That's 12 years old. A year, year and a half later, it was right during the abuse. He had promised that if I came to live with them, that he would drive us up to a friend that lived in Washington at the time, and I could see one of my really good friends who'd moved out of town. And we would take this road trip as a quasi-family, this new family I was living with for a year. And there's a scene of me sitting on this little trike. And, of course, I'm too big for the trike. And I'm 13, somewhere around that age. And the look on my face is just, it's, and I remember, I remember the moment. And the look in my eyes is just, I'm panicked. It's, there's a vacancy there. And when I saw those two pictures side by side, and I'm like looking for pictures, the the two new pictures I need to finish off this podcast to send up and you mm-hmm. know email to him to get ready. And I could barely get ready for this podcast the next day. I, I was just a hot mess. And it really disturbed me that that came up and bit me in the ass after all those years. I'd already written the book. 
The book was already published out. I'd already been on podcasts. I'd already talked about it. Pictures of yourself at the age where abuse happens. It it is uh, it's so intense because you see the the innocence that I think <clears throat> oftentimes we when we think of ourselves as younger, we think of ourselves as just a shorter adult. Yeah, it it really struck me as that loss of innocence, and it made me angry all over again. I wanted to fight for every abuse victim ever in any religion. And I wanted restitution and I wanted answers and I wanted, but I had to go back and say, but look where I am today. Look at the work I've done. Look what I've told my story, which is so important. I can't say enough how important it is to somehow, some way, whether it's in your own journal, whether it's in a support group, whether you write a song about it, whether you do a painting about it, I I believe in artistic expression to tell your story through your art because there's a creative there's a creative vein in every single one of us. And maybe it comes out, you know, in a poem, maybe it comes out in dance. For me it came out as a writer and I am so grateful that I wrote that book. Like I kind of look at my higher self and go, "Thank you," you know. I'm really grateful that, A, that the book got published, but that I found my way through all that. And when I wrote the book, I found empathy I didn't know I had for my sister, you know, that I didn't really have before I started writing that book. Because she was in a cult, too, and she lost her mother, too. But because she was in a motherly role with me, I had a hard time, like, seeing her as my sister, Instead of just like my mother's sister. And how far, I'm just going to scoot your mic. Sure. How far into, uh, how old were you when that began to to take hold? When you began to see that, I mean, in many ways, she was still a child. That's the thing. It's like, I didn't really see that until I started writing the book. So it's years after, but she hasn't spoken to me. And like, you know, once you, yes, she can't talk to me. So in her religion, she's still in the religion. And I don't even know if she's read the book. I hope she has. Um, But I'm disfellowshipped and I'm an apostate. So like if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you knock on my door, I'm supposed to tell you I'm an apostate. Like it's this weird thing. And then someone else, so why would you tell them? Why do you need to follow their rules? And I'm like, I don't know. Why did I ever go to that meeting? Like it's like. Just weird shit. I mean, doesn't that speak to the power of It does. It does. And it's like. I went to this women's like group. I don't know. I was just like, I was marketing my writing services. I coach writers and I do some high level copywriting stuff. I like to do bios for people and tell their story and their business story. So sometimes I'll take, you know, some copywriting jobs. And um, so I went to this women's group. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to this thing, wine and cheese, whatever over there in Encino or something. And I get to this meeting and I brought a copy of the book for the host of the, of the party. And she's asking me about it, and I'm telling her the short version, you know, I, I, 80% funny, 20% not funny at all about me growing up in a cult religion and finding my way and finding a new kind of tyranny and comedy and um, about finding your own truth. And this gal standing next to me goes, it's not a cult. I was like, she's a Jehovah's Witness because no one else would say that. And I just looked over at her and I said, are you Jehovah's Witness? Yes, I am. 
all perky. And I said, well, then you should know that I'm an apostate. (laughs) (laughs) I got in the car after the meeting and I was just like, I was just so dutiful back there. Like, and you should know I'm an apostate. I mean, it was just really weird because there's so many categories of the world for them. You know, anybody Mm -hmm. outside of the Jehovah's Witness organization is part of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, so I had to grapple with that in therapy too, because, you know, your, your feet are in the world. You're standing on the planet. You're, you know, you're here. And that whole misfit thing is such a big deal. And that's one of the reasons that I, uh, that the uh, dedication page says for the truth seekers and the misfits, because there's a misfit in all of us. There's always times, you know, and I think I can use the word always, which is not my favorite word, but I think it's accurate to say that we've all had times in our lives where we felt like a misfit and the overcompensation, the false bravado and the, you know, imposter syndrome that comes with that. It is unending. And I think once you, once you see that as the demon that it is and you kind of slay it, make a joke out of it and go, no, I'm enough. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me is you have a sense of humor, but you aren't using it to deflect. And, and that's one of the things I really love seeing is somebody who knows when to put the, the, yeah, the sword down yeah, and, and, and be vulnerable. Well, these are lives, you know, and I just felt like, have you ever like, I remember a time when I went to, I was in the audience and it was uh, in San Francisco and there was a comic up at the punchline in San Francisco and someone had just killed themselves and brought their babies with them, driven a car over a cliff and the babies, two babies died and, and the father and someone got up and it was fresh. Like it had happened that weekend and the comic got up and made some jokes about it. And I just thought to myself, comedy is such a finite art. But it is an art, and if you if you treated it as such, you wouldn't have done that joke, because there's something in you that we don't know about that I would rather have heard about mm-hmm. than have used the sword of comedy to try to get an audience to laugh about something that tragic where we lost three lives that could have still been with us, that is, is, and the kids didn't have a choice, right? And that is so astute because most comedians, I think myself included, and this is kind of embarrassing because I've been doing this podcast since 2011, (laughs) is my thought process would have stopped at that's too soon. I wouldn't, I mean, I would have known, oh, that person clearly is not uncomfortable, is not comfortable talking about feelings. You can imagine that person offstage, cynical to the core, right. doesn't want to risk anything by right. by being vulnerable, but it would have never occurred to me to go, I want to hear the right. pain inside them where that's a coping mechanism for them right. to read a newspaper article and go, my God, the world is so sad. Right. And I think, you know, Right now, we are in such a place where there's just, there's shootings, there's, you know, there's so much going on in the news. Um, I've had to temper my news intake. I've had to change the way I do my doom scroll <laughs> with insomnia. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard you talking about insomnia on one of your uh, podcasts. And uh, I think a lot of creatives do suffer from that. 
I use it as a time, like, what am I supposed to be thinking about right now that's creative that I could, and as soon as I do that, I go to sleep. I bore myself with my own projects <laughs> and I and I fall back asleep. So I was going to give you that tip. But I think it's really important that, yes, we be informed. But these are people that, you know, if they're coming to a live comedy show, they made the decision to buy the ticket if they're if they have to pay for the ticket. Of course, most clubs are like, Use the code Katie and get in for free. You know, they're trying to get people in the club, which is great because we want a live audience. They found parking. They got their two item minimum. They sat their ass down in the seat. They're there to be entertained. They can watch the news anytime they want. That's not to say that we shouldn't comment on the news and we are custodians of our, our history, you know, as artists. But I just think there's there's a time and a place for it. And I think as comics, as artists, we should ask ourselves, what am I afraid to say about myself? Really, I had this, I go back to this joke that I wrote and I still struggle with this piece sometimes. And it was about me accidentally dating a murderer just to like, you know, encapsulate it. And this uh, happened in real life. This or- happened in real life. I wrote an essay about it. It's on my website, right, left, love. Um, and it's a, it's called a uh, killer punchline. And so I date, I quasi, I have to mm-hmm. say quasi, cause this was just a, it was a hot love affair is what it was. Met him online. Um, he was a real quiet guy. <laughs> and we had this kind of weird intimacy. I don't know. It was just like he didn't say much. I did all the talking, if you can imagine that. And uh, it was it was uh, during Trump's uh, election process four years ago. And um, I'm, I'm not a supporter of Trump. You know, hey, if you are, good for you. I'm not. Um, and we had a little scuffle about it. But we're in bed. Naked under the sheets, and we're talking about politics, which we never talked about before. And I just wanted to shut it down because it certainly wasn't the afterplay I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And we had a very casual re- relationship, so I just said, well, whatever, man. Just make sure you vote. And he said, you know I can't vote. And I said, oh, see, now this is what's wrong with the world. Blah, blah, blah. You got to do it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I couldn't vote for years because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in politics, so you don't vote. I go, I'm just so happy I vote now. And I go, so you have to vote. And he goes, no, you know I can't vote. I'm a felon. I go, what? <laughs> you never told me you're a felon. He goes, yeah, yeah. And I go, okay. And this is like, whew, you just can't be naked enough under the sheets when someone's just told you they're a felon. And you realize, I met this guy online. And all the things that you've done together, it's all starting to add up. And you're like, what were the signs? Why didn't I see these? And... uh I said, well, how long are you in for? And I'm gathering the sheets around me. And he goes, 24 years. Oh, and I my go, Lord. 24 years. I was like, what? And I, and then, of course, what person would not ask the next question? I mean, I'm no Barbara Walters, but I was like, what did you do? You know, what were you in for? And he said, I killed somebody. And I was just like silent. And he told me a little bit about the story that he was very young. He was 18. He was involved in some kind of fender bender. They wanted to scare the guy. They went back to his house. They didn't want him to report the accident because they had tickets out and they didn't want to lose their car or something, him and another guy. And they went in to scare him and the gun went off and he died. And he went to jail for 24 years and so did the other guy, I guess. But what happened, of course, I never saw him again, but what happened was... I went into this deep sense of shame. How did I not see this coming? 
how did I attract this person? You know, all those like mm-hmm. life coachy things. And, you know, I'm, in, I'm into the self-improvement, yeah. right? So I'm like, you are what you eat. You are what you attract. You are this. You are that. And all this stuff is like rolling around in my head. And I'm like, how did I not see the signs? What is wrong with me? Am I a kind of person that attracts murderers? Like I was really like giving myself a hard time. And I was trying to like, I knew there was funny in it. I knew there was. And I wanted to write a joke about it. So I was at the deli with a friend of mine and I started trying to write this joke and I had some punchlines and everything. And then I just burst into tears and he goes, what (laughs) is wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. I just keep going back to this place. Like, why didn't I see that coming? Who am I that I attracted that? Is that all I'm worth? Like, where's my self-worth in all of this? And so by the time that I got done writing the joke, I used part of that angst where I talked about that moment when you don't know who you're with resides in your solar plexus. And then the punchline is something like, you know, so I go through that, how that feels in your body. And that was all the truth. But then I said, you know, I can't believe it. You know, and you would think that I would say, I can't believe I dated a murderer. I cannot believe I dated a Republican. And that is the punchline. So, but I did take that real pain. Right. Because to me, what's the point of the joke if I'm not going to share that? You know, that's where it lived. It lived in my solar plexus where I was just like, why? You know, and there's funny in that. There's funny in me, just the stuff that went through my head, you know. And then, of course, the the writing the punchline took all kinds of different turns. And I've gotten huge laughs on that and I've gotten silence. So it's like, you know, that's how you know it's a good joke. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. So in in my opinion, if if the laughs vary greatly. Yeah. To me, that's usually a sign that you've taken some kind of yeah. of risk. Not always that it's a great joke, but usually, yeah. usually. And when I wrote the essay, I'm extremely proud of that essay. I'll always leave that up on my site because I talk about the same thing that I went are these, through. Are, are, hold that thought. Sure. Are these all on your website? Yes. I, I want the listeners to be able to find sure. all the stuff so you're the, talking about. So the essay, the book is called Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy. It's a memoir. And you can get it in – it's also on Audible and uh, paperback and Amazon. And you can go into bookstores and order it. And I'm making the rounds through a lot of the indie bookstores and done some signings at Barnes & Noble. So some of the Barnes & Noble has it. Studio City has it because I've done it over there. Bookstar? And Thousand Oaks. Bookstar. Yeah, I you love can, that. So you can go anywhere basically and order the book if they don't have it on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And then a lot, of, a lot of places are getting it on the shelves. Um, and then I recorded the audible. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, so it's two tickets to paradise from cult to comedy. And then the website is right, laugh, love dot com. And W-R-I-T-E. Yeah. Because yeah. although we might think I'm an equestrian, I've had people go, you mean like ride? And I'm like, no, right. <laughs> yeah. A horse sees me come and they're like, oh, God, no. Um, anyway, that's for another day. So the My thought question. I interrupted sure. you. Do you remember where you were going when I said, you know, what's um, your website? No, I'm so good at that. <laughs> That's, uh, and I'm okay with it. I have I have plenty of stories. Oh, I was t- I was talking about vulnerability. That the same that same feeling that I had when I was writing that joke is the same feeling I had when I did that podcast shooting at Raw, where I was like, how did this come up? How did this old trauma? Mm-hmm come up and bite me on the ass when I did all of this work. What were those five years of therapy about? What were all those books that I read? How many journals have I read and like 
you know, how how many journals do I need to fill? And it's not like, you know, I write, um, I'm emoting all this information mm-hmm. in journals. I literally write in blurts in journals. I would never let anyone read it. It just sounds like it's like affirmations and me getting my head back on straight. But I do the work, you know, so I was mad at myself again. Like, how did this happen? Why, why am I so mean to myself? And recently, I would say the last like year, I came across, because um, I used to write for life coaches, which is hilarious. I would get these little gigs and I would be writing for a life coach and I'd be like, oh my God, this is the worst advice I've ever heard. <laughs> they're, they're just perpetuating self-hatred so that they can be the solution to their problem. What if they started out just loving themselves more? Of course, it would be a shorter pay period for these people. But I started like reworking some of the content and then I would go to the life coach and say, listen, this came in pretty harsh, so I just smoothed that out a little bit because if they're going to reach out, I think that they should be able to see the solution sooner. That's just kind of sales mm-hmm. language. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I like that. And so I started like putting my own stuff in there. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Why don't I write a life coach book? <laughs> so one of my next books is uh, a short humor book that basically is my little nuggets of wisdom. And then at the end of it, I just have a disclaimer like, hey, if that doesn't work, that's what carbs are for. And you can attest to that because I brought, you know, I don't know how. Four, four of the most four amazing the most, looking cookies. Y- these cookies are the size of a Volkswagen. Yeah. And uh, they didn't pay for any uh, advertising, so we're not going to say their name. But it's a big cookie is what I'm saying. And so I'm going to default with, hey, if this advice doesn't work for you, you know, go get a cinnamon roll. I don't care. But I'm just saying this is the wisdom that I've attained during my life. But I think those moments of vulnerability, whether it's in comedy or whether it is in, you know, whether it's on stage or whether it's in a conversation, those are the moments that teach you the most. But sometimes it takes a minute where you're like driving and it's like two weeks later and you're mm-hmm. like, why did that upset me so much that that guy said that or that that friend did that or that, you know, I felt this way about myself after this happened? Why am I taking that stance with myself? Mm-hmm. And when you can do that, I think it's time to leave therapy. <laughs> Save yourself some money. Um, I just think you have to ask yourself those kinds of questions. I couldn't agree more. Sometimes people will write in and, you know, they'll they'll ask me for advice. And I very much, even though sometimes I may be resolute in an answer I have, I feel like uh, when I just ask them questions or or say, ask yourself this, ask yourself this, because very often it's not an answer. It's a question that leads the way to you know, a solution or just maybe the process of elimination of, right. I'm going to get rid of this, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe the answer will reveal itself. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think we have so much information and you tell me what you think about this just being in media. We have so much stuff coming at us. You know how when you're on stage, it's like, there's this beautiful uh, circulation happening like air. Take a breath in. You're taking the energy from the audience. You're exhaling with your punchline. It's sort of like breath. And you have this beautiful energy that's going back and forth on a good night. On a bad night, who cares? We want to forget this. Um, but in media today, it's like all this information is constantly coming at us mm-hmm. and coming at us. And I feel like people, the only way that they can be in that 
circulation that they're looking for is to be at their keyboard and blurt some shit out Couldn't on Twitter, more. now known as X. I don't know. Why did they call it X? Because when I saw an X on my phone screen, I deleted it. I thought something had happened. Someone hacked right. my phone. It's yeah. like nobody told me about this. And then I had to go back and add it back in, which tells you my level of techno uh, expertise. But I think it's really important today to ask yourself questions before you respond because so much is coming at us in media. We don't have that thing that we need as artists where it's an energy, it's an energy back and forth energy, a give and take. We don't get that yeah. when media just comes as it lands flat. Yeah, there's no rhythm to yeah, it or exactly. at least a rhythm that is doable. It's yeah. like uh, Lucy with the conveyor belt of candies. <laughs> It's just her just standing there and it just goes off into the deep end and there's it never comes back around. Yeah. Yeah. That would be sad for Lucy. It would. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much. I'm glad thank our you. our paths crossed and kudos on on your recovery and the the work that you're <clears throat> the work that you're doing and uh thank you know, you. there's lots of things I love seeing doing this podcast. But watching someone heal from a religious cult and sexual abuse and learning to tell the mean voice in their head to, you know, zip it. Yeah. Even if it's just for one minute in a day. I I feel like the last year has been a a game changer for me. I I recently moved to a little beach town in Ventura. I am close enough to the city for meetings like this. Um, I'm close enough to comedy, but I love the casual beach vibe of it. And I love the piece of it and, um, how easy it is to get around. And it all started with me being nicer to myself and asking myself, what do you really want without false bravado, without insecurities coming in? What, if you knew you were enough, where do you want to live? What do you want to do? What's your life look like? And I started creating from that place. That's where I started. And when a little story that I didn't tell was that I broke my neck about a year and a half ago. And it was the day before I was set to go into the studio to record the Audible. And I tripped up on a rug, a really weird freak accident. And I, I, broke, my, I broke my neck. I, I fractured my C1, which is a pretty important yeah. area of your neck. It's where the, you know, your head sits on that. The C1, that's the atlas. So I was in a neck brace for 10 weeks, and nobody was coming for me. And I had a lot of time to think. Uh, Six weeks later after the accident, I was uh, in the studio recording the Audible. So I did the entire Audible in a neck brace. Me and my big boobs in a small little theater uh, studio with with my neck brace. We barely fit with my ego all inside this little booth. I was just beside myself with joy. And there's pictures of me like, like this in a neck brace, you know. But something happened. It was a very unfortunate accident, but something happened in all that time that I couldn't really move around a lot. I was very confronted by my emotions because when I would relive this, all of this stuff that was, had happened in this book, which is my life, I, didn't, I couldn't go frolic on the beach. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go hang out with my friends. I couldn't go to comedy. I couldn't go, like I was down. I would just go in the Uber, record, come home, and I would sit on my couch and watch content. I couldn't look down, so I wasn't writing. I I was really alone with myself. And I started making decisions about time. You know, I talked a little bit about how time was such a constraint for me. 
and that a lot of people that have lost time in in recovering from sexual abuse or being in a cult or being anything that's in repressive that I wasn't going to let that rule the rest of my life that I lived through this thing that I could have easily died from and I made decisions during that time and I stuck by them so that when I got that neck brace off man as soon as I could I started plotting and planning for all of those things that I wanted to do needed to happen and there wasn't anything standing in my way except my own mind and then I stumbled into somebody I really like listening to Marissa Peer um, tell yourself a better lie one of the best books I have listened to and now I listen to her little videos once in a while because it's rapid transformation it's not like I feel like I have to go back to therapy for 10 years that appealed to me you know with this time thing right and I just started doing things differently. And But the biggest thing is I started speaking to myself differently. And so I just, if I found myself being hard on myself, I stop. And I think to myself, is this conducive to the kind of day I want? <laughs> mm-hmm. I start with one day. Because I think when you're tough on yourself because you've lived through some stuff, it feels familiar. You know, all of that harsh stuff feels familiar. And um, you have to start getting familiar with being really nice to yourself. I've only lived in this town for a couple of months. I recently made all these changes. I walk on the beach now and I yell out loud. I sound like a lunatic. I live here. It's so weird because I visualized it for so long and worked on it for so long that I have to pinch myself. Literally, I'm just walking down these little beach pathways and I go, I live here. People are like, all righty, crazy. (laughs) You know, that's so fantastic. But it really, I can't say enough to people. Watch how you talk to yourself. Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's one of the things that really important we talk about the most on yeah. the podcast. There's, yeah. there's a, a survey that people can take um, called the, the mean voice in your head. Yeah. I heard you talk a those. little bit yeah. about the surveys. Yeah. yeah. It's so important. And it sounds, you know, we can cognitively understand that. Let it land in your heart. That's what I would say. Let it land in your heart. What did you just say to yourself? Be the mean parent to yourself. Yeah, you're going to feel like a schizo for a little bit. Yeah. I rather people. I rather see people do that. You know, to check themselves because when we let, when we talk to ourselves like that, we find ourselves letting other people talk to us that way. Mm-hmm. And as entertainers and people in media that want to make a difference, want to use our voice to to affect change, great change. It's really hard to do that and have those voices going on that say you're not enough, and it's just not the truth. That's true. And we, when we talk nicer to ourselves, we fuck a better quality murderer. That's right. It, it, and that's important. You know, next time I'm going to go for somebody that spends a little bit more on dinner. <laughs> I want somebody that takes me to a nicer place. I got tacos out of this guy. I want maybe steak for the next murderer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Katie, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) That's great. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a a quick break and see if we have any uh, sponsors. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Anxiety's Best Friend. She identifies... She just identifies. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Never been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, while my younger sister and me were growing up, uh, we were only one year and 12 days apart. My dad traveled often with work. My mother would often have strange men over when my dad was working sexual type of things. I saw my mom walking naked with a robe open around many different men who would also wear only underwear. My earliest memory of these type of monthly occasions was around five years old. My mom threatened my sister and I saying if we told our dad that we would be homeless or we would have to go be property of the state. It was very confusing because when my dad would arrive home with gifts and hugs, my mom would greet him acting so happy to see him even kiss him. As we got older in preteen years, this became more and more upsetting, understanding that this wasn't normal. As we began to get of age to have boyfriends over, my mom would walk around in a white t-shirt uh, with nipples showing and sexy panties. It embarrassed me and made me feel threatened by her sexuality as I did not have the boobs yet and confidence uh, she often talked about sex. When I was 15, she showed me how to give a blowjob using a banana. A lot more things like that happened. She was compulsively talking about, you must have a clean pussy. Guys like it clean. And would talk to me while I bathed and discuss if I shaved right or how to clean myself for men. I don't know if this is a form of covert incest or not, but it feels like it was. It doesn't get much more covert incesty than that. And if you've not read the book uh, Silently Seduced by Kenneth Adams, I highly, highly recommend reading it. Any positive experiences with abusers? She was my mom. Stayed at home, cooked big, wonderful meals, and dropped us at school and picked us up. Attended all important events. Yeah, that's that's the that's what they're supposed to do. And. Um, you know, when I ask that question, any positive experiences, uh, I always hope that they write something more than the things that are baseline requirements to be a functional parent. Um, and sometimes there just isn't. Sometimes it's the best, the best that uh, they can come up with is uh, we were fed and et cetera, et cetera darkest thoughts. I think about how I wished I would have told my dad before my sister and I did at age 19 when we both left home. My dad believed us and my mom 
grabbed one suitcase, packed her stuff, and left. Filed for divorce and didn't let us know where she was or anything. My husband, sudden passing away from a brain aneurysm, uh, had her contacting me 17 years without talking to her at all. I tried to tell her how much she hurt me and my sister. She didn't own up to anything except that she was just a sexual person and she had hoped with us being adults now we would understand. I decided that I can't allow her in my life and I have no clue about anything regarding her life now. Good for you. You know, you you took that step of advocating for yourself and she revealed her character and you made an informed decision and I want to give you a high five. And it's sad that you don't have a mom. It sucks. Darkest secrets. I would manipulate my mom when I was a teenager to get to stay out late or skip school to drink alcohol and try drugs. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Dirty talk. Tied up. Rape fantasy. But my husband uh, pretending scenario. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could fight my anxiety slash abandonment issues. Man, when... The imprint of the things that happened to you, I mean, that is a branding iron. Um, and I don't think it ever goes away, but that I, I believe that, that those scars can heal and, and shrink. Have you shared these things with others? I've been in therapy the last 10 years. The only other person I've talked to is my sister. Uh, and I talked to my husband, and he knows very minimal things. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like sharing my story gives me uh, the power to deal with the damage that I endured. I'm glad. I'm glad you feel empowered. I love I love hearing that. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Talk about it with someone. Get help. And it's not your fault what your parents did while you depended on them. Thank you for that. These are some loves from uh, Crow's Feet. And they write, I love my closet, the clothes in it, the accessories, the layout. My closet isn't even that big and my clothes aren't even that fancy. No special vintage pieces, nothing designer, nothing expensive. But everything in there is all mine and they fit my body perfectly. No one can take them away from me or force me to wear something I don't want to ever again. I get to decide how I look. Uh, Paul, I love that you ask any good experiences with your abuser in your surveys because it feels healing to remember the fun and the laughter too alongside the fear and pain. Not that the former washes out the latter, but that it's simply okay to acknowledge both. I love when you read other people's good experiences out loud because it makes me feel less lonely, less crazy. Thank you for that. You're very, very welcome. And uh, yeah, I was excited when I, because that wasn't originally in the Shame and Secrets uh, survey. That got added uh, after a while because I found myself struggling with, you know, even though having cut contact with my mom, having many fond memories of experiences with her. And uh, that's the part that made the cutting contact so incredibly confusing and difficult. So I'm glad, um, I'm glad you like that. 
This is from the love survey filled out by Jess. And uh, she writes, I love taking walks and looking at all the different types of trees and shades of green and the way the wind moves through their leaves. I think about how I am breathing and the trees are helping me, just a deep appreciation of them. I don't know fully where it came from, but it seems right. I've been really loving moving my body, how, my body, how I, my body, how I want to and exercising for the love of moving and not for a specific measurement of health. I've been enjoying yoga because I feel like I actually enjoy the sensation of stretching or the poses. I realized when I was younger that exercise never took into account the joy of moving, and sometimes I would run until I felt sick, sick because I was on a team sport and there was the feeling to keep pushing yourself no matter what. So that has changed, and I really love that so much. That is a great one. That is a great one. It's so hard to become friends with our our bodies. It's so hard because so often we use them as a tool to to get love or acceptance rather than, um, you know, I think one of the things that helps me appreciate my body is um, the muscles that I use when I play hockey or I would work and the, the functional aspect of um, trying to, to keep healthy rather than how do I look in the mirror, uh, you know, and obsessing about that. And not that it's wrong to, you know, look in the mirror and want to see a body that you like, but, um, I don't know. I find it's easier to not hate my body when I see the things that it can do rather than it's, uh, it's reflection. And I love you sharing about trees, um, I'm in the process of building some end tables right now that I'm hopefully going to sail, sail, hopefully going to sell. I haven't figured out where and how yet, but uh, one of the woods that I'm working with on one of the tables is a pear, is a, it's called Swiss pear, and pear as in the fruit pear. And it's, it looks a little bit like uh, cherry, but it's also a little different. And when I first started woodworking, I was always interested in woods that were really kind of loud and dramatic and had amazing grain and had people go, oh my God, that's that's amazing. But the longer I woodwork now, while I do still appreciate those, when it comes to like the legs of a table, I find that I like finding a wood that's really, really subtle. And that it doesn't distract from the hopefully beautiful form of the leg, if that makes sense. And I discovered Swiss pear from reading a book by James Krenoff, the late James Krenoff, who was one of the most influential American woodworkers. He taught at the College of the Redwoods up in Northern California and was just an amazing amazing maker of fine furniture and he didn't produce many things i'm just learning how to talk it's going pretty well but look up james krenoff k-r-e-n-o-v on the internet and look at the pictures of some of his wood and he used swiss pear and when you see some of his designs you'll 
you'll understand what I'm talking about because the grain is really, really subtle on the things he builds with Swiss pear, but because the form and the shape, the hand-shaped details on his furniture is so beautiful, you realize the beauty of Swiss pear. And I hope I don't fuck up the wood on this Swiss pear table because I fucked up the legs on the last one. I was using maple and I wound up wasting a board that probably cost $120. And I didn't realize that <laughs> one of the machines had gone out of square and so it put all these unusable angles on the legs that I made and they can't be salvaged really to use anything except built inexpensive fire. <laughs> so it, it, uh, boy, when you're faced to confront the perfectionism, perfectionism in yourself, especially when it's cost you money and time, because I spent about eight hours working on those legs and was so happy. And then I went to try to glue them up and I was like, why are these not meeting flush? And I just, Oh, I just felt my stomach drop. And then my testicles dropped and I entered puberty. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself, what's going on up there? I don't know. We'll find out. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, he's never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, my parents have always had incredibly high expectations of me. They themselves were high-achieving people with very unhealthy coping mechanisms to failure and always stressed that the most important things and about my life was success. One of my parents has insanely high trust issues and has this incredible ability to hold generational grudges. I cannot even begin to describe the depth of this parent's trust issues, but I can say it has bled into my conscience and the way I carry myself and act throughout my life in every single way. Even writing this right now, I can't even bring myself to say which parent. I'm just too scared. My parents also would call me lazy and ungrateful when I would give myself any kind of break from my scheduled to the minute life and wouldn't believe anything I would say about chronic stress, dyslexia, panic attacks, and more. Which reminds me of a great interview. I don't remember how to find it, but it's with Wayne Gretzky. And he was, the, those of you that don't know, he's a, probably the greatest hockey player that ever lived. And he was talking about how he thinks that the schedule to the minute uh, kind of way of approaching kids taking up hockey these days has robbed them of the ability to be imaginative and creative. And uh, I thought that was an, a, a really great observation because when I learned to play hockey, we would just get turned loose on frozen ponds for eight hours and with nobody saying, oh, you got to do this drill or that drill. And maybe I would have become a better hockey player with um, you know, somebody instructing me, but I love finding your own kind of groove when you're, when you're doing a sport. Anyway, continuing any positive experiences with the abusers. They're my parents. So I love them and so many opportunities that I have in life. I can thank them for, I'm incredibly thankful. 
darkest thoughts. I dream about people being sad after I attempt to or succeed in killing myself. I don't think I actually have suicidal thoughts, but I think about how the people around me would react if I were to, uh, and I think about it constantly. It makes me happy and excited to feel validated and have all the people around me realize truly how much I was going through and how hard it is for someone to handle. I've read a lot of people share that, and you know, to me, it's like such a human feeling to just want to be seen and validated. And not have to accomplish something to be loved or appreciated. What if anything, uh, and he did not fill out the uh, answer to the question, Any sexual? Uh, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell somebody about how often I think about suicide. I've never been able to truly be honest about how often I think about suicide because I've been too scared of the repercussions. I could never go through with suicide. I truly can never imagine myself actually having it as an option, but I'm curious as to why it is so often in my thoughts. I don't know. Maybe it's connected to just wanting to be seen, and that's the one that you can imagine because you haven't experienced it in your household, you've only experienced the cracking of the whip and conditional love. And it's probably hard to get a sense of what you mean to your parents outside of the accomplishment. So, but I'm glad that you're not making a plan or thinking about actually doing it. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? I wish I was more appreciated. I put so much effort and sacrifice so much in every aspect of my life, friendships, relationships, work, etc. And I very seldom get any appreciation for it. I wish I could find motivation to continue to put in this effort without needing appreciation. But at the same time, it feels, I don't know why I got loud there, it feels great to be validated. And I would love to be met with some kind of acknowledgement to all the work that I put in daily. You know, I'm wondering if support group wouldn't be a great thing for you to connect to people and experience unconditional love outside of any activities or accomplishment because for me it's really really beneficial have you shared these things with others i brought this up to my therapist and he helped me think this through how do you feel after writing these things down scared i'm scared as always that i reveal too much but this is all towards my efforts to be more honest and feel better about opening up and trusting people and i'm really really glad you shared that and you did not reveal too much. That is the essence of vulnerability, is not revealing too much, but taking that, claiming our story. story I don't know. I think my brain is shutting down. Uh, expressing our story, expressing our feelings. Um, and of course, it's scary. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone. And no matter how much you think you emulate, what the fuck, emulate your parents, you are still your own person and you are not destined to repeat their patterns. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. This is an email that I got from uh, Warren Buffett. 
And he writes, Dear elect, you have successfully been granted the cumulative sum of $5.8 million from Berkshire Hathaway Incorporated. This was organized through Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation in partnership with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to give this amount to randomly selected individuals worldwide. This grant can be used, and this is key, for any purpose you choose. Though I would encourage you to use it for humanitarian purposes, such as poverty alleviation, educational purpose, and personal development, your email was among those selected online through Google Database. I'm again going to repeat the sentence. This grant can be used for any purpose you choose. And Warren... I have been praying for a $5 million grant to work on the Museum for Air Guitar. I haven't decided what city it would be in. It might be Cleveland, next to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, people are already there. They're already doing air guitar as they look at the beautiful mementos <laughs> why not wander next door and see who really does air guitar I'm thinking about a wallet that you can velcro to your shoe so as you're walking you're looking down and you're like look at my money I'm making my money work for me and I'd like to design a car that runs on soup. How many times have you been on a long highway trip and you're thinking, man, could I go for some creamy chicken noodle? Well, just imagine you pull over, you put your mouth around that gas tank valve, and you suck in some nice hot soup, and then you're on your way. Yeah, maybe you can't go as far as you just drank some of the soup. You got a full belly. Just the road laying out ahead. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Emma. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s. Was raised in, uh, she says, a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused. Uh, never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. And she writes, a very condensed version. One of my childhood friends constantly lied to me to the point where he created a false narrative that was so involved that he believed it to be real. When I tried to create space for my own mental well-being, he used his mental health to guilt me for trying to back away. Any positive experiences with abusers? We were friends for eight years before he started abusing me. Sometimes it feels like it's me that could be the abuser, like I made him into this person, uh, or if it's just my own reaction to him and that he did not abuse me. Even now, I can't stop looking at his everyday actions, pretending that it's just to laugh at his mess of a life. I miss him so much that I'm obsessed, but I shake when I'm around him. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish I was sick so people would help me. I'm so obsessed with myself that I want people to stare at me. When I'm walking, I wait to see people turn around to look at me. 
darkest secrets. When I was 11, my friend asked to have sex even though I did not know how it was done. I knew the meaning of the word sex. My parents did not shelter me, but I did not understand how it was performed. My friend taught me what it was. We did not even have real intercourse, but at that point it felt real. After, I felt guilt and sadness, but did not even understand why. I did not feel comfortable, but at other times asked my friend to do it again. After the first time, because I knew so little, I remember worrying I might get pregnant even though we were both girls and I had not hit puberty. Now it sounds silly, but at that time it was terrifying and shameful. After that, I still asked for it again because I thought my friend wanted it and even though I was scared and I enjoy it, I wonder now if I'm remembering it wrong and maybe I pressured my friend. I wonder if I only ever enjoyed it and made up that I felt uncomfortable so I can hate this person for something they never did. I hate myself for the fact that I enjoyed it and asked for it again and again. That's a lot of feelings to walk around with. And um, I'm sorry that you are feeling that way. And I think anybody listening to this is thinking she is being so hard on herself. And it's amazing how differently our bodies and our souls can be experiencing something, especially when it comes to sex. We can experience pleasure um, or we can be experiencing the intention, the attention or closeness of somebody while we're having sex. And yet there's a part of us that feels overwhelmed by the details of sex, the, the physical uh, intensity, because it, it's, it's fucking intense. It's like you can be aroused, but still it's, it's, uh, it's like you love pizza, but somebody sets down five pizzas and is like, okay, yeah, we're going to, this is going to be pleasurable, but this is how much it's going to be. Was that a terrible analogy? Maybe it was. Maybe right now you want pizza and I'm to blame. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to have sex with people that have hurt me. Writing that, this fantasy makes me feel like they never did stuff to me, and I'm just trying to think of a reason why to not get involved. I sometimes fantasize about having relations with my professors. I want it to happen because I feel it would make them care for me more, and the way they talk is more inviting than the people I meet. Sharing this makes me feel worse. It makes me doubt my own feelings. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And you know, before I, I, I breathe that, I just want to say one of the things that the human mind does is it, it, especially if there was a really overly intense sexual situation, wanted or unwanted, when, when, when we're developing, um, especially if it's confusing, is it sexualizes emotions like fear, jealousy, loneliness, anger. Um, and so that might be going on in your brain. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my old friend I miss him, 
But no, I can't because it would give him too much hope. Even though I tell him to stop contacting me, he continues to randomly text me. So talking to him would mean opening up conversation to, to, uh, conversations to be friends again, which I know is not okay. I recommend uh, blocking his number. Just my two cents. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish someone else would take over my life so I did not have to think anymore. I wish that I was not dyslexic, and I think she means dyslexic in terms of uh, her emotions, and that I would stop laughing over my flaws. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared these things with others, but I only tell the parts that make me look good so they all feel for me. I never say the things I've done wrong, and when I do, uh, blame others for my faults. I don't think I can face that I did wrong stuff too. At the same time, I feel guilty telling people anything because I have an extremely privileged life. Having a privileged life has nothing to do with our our emotions. You know, your depression is valid whether you're eating off of fine china or at a dumpster. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good, but I also wonder if I'm just doing it to make others feel for me. I wonder if I'm making too big a deal about normal things. No. Your feelings and your memories are fucking with you. And I say keep working through them. And then finally, this is uh, some loves. This is filled out by a person who calls himself the pill bottle strapped to the top of Paul's station wagon. And uh, of course, they're talking about the logo for the podcast. Uh, I love how driving across a bridge or a dark stretch of road at night that overlooks... I read this wrong. How long driving across a bridge or a dark stretch of road at night that overlooks a large lake. Now, I think that I think there's a grammar error in there, and there's no way to, to read this with any emphasis that it uh, makes uh, sense, but we understand what uh, it is that you love. Uh, the only lights being the city skyline on the other side of the black water. The way it reflects off of it, making it seem as though you're looking into an upside-down world, and in my car, and in the... I think somebody must have dictated this. Siri really loves to fuck with grammar. Uh, my perfectionism right now is spiraling out of control. Like people, I imagine people just taking off their headphones and stomping on them, not caring that they're going to have to buy another pair just because they have so much frustration listening to me stumble. I'm going to read this, ex start over, read it exactly as it is written, and you figure the fuck out what the grammar is supposed to be. Share something you love. How long driving across a bridge or a dark stretch of road at night that overlooks a large lake, period. The only lights being the city skyline on the other side of the black water, period. The way reflects off of it, making it seem as though you're looking into an upside-down world and in my car, and the only sounds are the car radio and the engine, 
There's just something so fascinating about it all, how something as mundane is driving a car can be some become such a strange yet serene and mystical experience. It brings an epiphany to mind that you can't be the driver and somebody else's life, but you can be this kind stranger on the sidewalk helping out by giving directions. Yes, this was dictated because where it should have said in somebody's life, it says and somebody's life. Please do not fill the surveys out via dictation if you want them read. And I don't know why I am yelling at you because I chose to read this survey. <laughs> I guess because it's such a, there's such beautiful loves. And now you've ruined my life with your dictation. So there you go. Are you happy that that's how, that is how we're going to, Gracie, this is how we're going to end the fucking podcast. You have ruined everybody's Christmas, everybody's New Year, and everybody's Arbor Day. I cast you, survey filler, beyond hell, through the Earth's core, out of China, into the center of the moon. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, maybe you are. I tell you what's not going to help you be unstuck. Filling out a goddamn survey with a fucking dictation software. Right now, there are probably some new listeners going, is he really that angry? No. He just doesn't know how to end the podcast, and he is clutching, grasping, at comedy straws to try to wrap this behemoth up at the 109 minute mark. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.